I'm Rustin, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Aaron. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I will get together to talk about some wild and wacky phenomenon in the wild and wonderful world of ecology, evolution, and natural history. And this time around, we're talking about streams, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to this one. I imagine you are also. Oh, absolutely. You you picked this topic and uh, could not have been more pleased. I was I was very happy with your choice of topic. You read my mind, honestly. Uh, Rustin is a big stream guy. Yeah, big fan of streams. Really, really interesting. Um, just because they're very dynamic environments that they're constantly changing, but the more they change, the more they stay the same. So they're really interesting to talk about. But with that being said, I believe it's my turn to go first, yeah? Yep, you're up. All right, so... When you wanted to talk about streams, I decided to focus on an animal that has a more profound impact on streams, really, than any other. Specifically, I decided to talk about beavers. Well, you know what? Yeah, I guess so. Because, yeah, there's no other animal, in, at least in my opinion, that can impact a stream more profoundly than a beaver can. At least, especially after doing the research for this episode. And I think you'll understand why once I'm done. Oh, yeah, because they can physically reshape it. Exactly, exactly. However, I should mention that there is a ton to unpack with this one specific animal. They are perhaps the most fascinating rodent on the planet, at least in my opinion. And I could probably spend at least two or three podcasts discussing them because there's so much to unpack, not only with their impact on streams, but with their behaviors and with their biology and with their, you know, physiology and how they're able to, you know, chew down trees. And there's a ton there that we could talk about. But since I have relatively limited time and I recognize that you also have something you want to discuss during this podcast, I chose to limit this discussion to, of beavers to one specific aspect, that being their impact on the streams themselves. Specifically, how beavers dramatically improve the health of the stream ecosystem and, in many ways, undo the negative impacts that people have on those same streams. Okay. I have I have a question. I'll wait. I'll wait. Uh, you haven't even started yet. Oh, no, no, no. Ask your question. And if I'm going to answer it later, I'll, I'll just answer it later. But Well, my thoughts are that beavers don't like streams. Because typically they make dams that create a larger body of water. Is that not correct? That is absolutely correct. So aren't they like the stream's nemesis almost in a sense? Not exactly. And I'll explain why. <laughs> okay, I, I thought beavers hated running water. Like even the sound of it would get them agitated. That is accurate. But I, I would say it's more accurate to say that beavers, while they prevent the stream from running it is the streams were arguably running too much so the beavers are counteracting that which is good for the overall health of the surrounding area and if that's incredibly confusing i hope it will not be by the time i'm finished with this piece okay carry on then okay so just to give a very brief background here, beavers are truly remarkable builders in the animal kingdom in that they totally reshape their environment to suit their needs. Um, not only that, but they do it with materials that are left over from their feeding as well, because they feed on the live tissue on the outside of woody branches and sticks, and then will use those sticks to build their dams. It's the human equivalent of building your house out of like leftover McDonald's wrap wrappers and bags. It's truly remarkable if you think about it. But the dams create these deep, large pools in which the beavers can hide from predators and thrive, which is their primary reason for building these dams. There is some research around how beavers are agitated by the sound of running water, but the primary reason, at least as far as I could find in my research, was that the beavers do this to better suit the habitat to their own needs. And to be fair, I would also be agitated if I heard the sound of running water. Because I'd be wondering, what the hell is that? Where is it coming from? Right, and who the hell is peeing in my room? <laughs> there was a year in college where a various, we had a very serious problem where every now and then half a gallon of water would pour out of the lights. It was condensing in the air conditioning unit. 
we, we just knew when it would happen. We put the buckets in the exact spots. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I imagine if I were a beaver, I would still be just as agitated. Sure, sure. Except the, that they live in streams where you expect running water. We didn't expect running water in our common room. <laughs> yeah. It was a really, really awkward thing to explain whenever we tried to host a party. I emphasize the word try because it's difficult to actually have a party when there is water leaking from your ceiling. The lights specifically. It was coming out of the lights. (laughs) And I remember the phone call with Nathan. It's like, yeah, it was like half a gallon just came out now. Yep, it it was the light. It came out of the light fixture. (laughs) No, it can't be good. Oh, yeah. College is a trip, isn't it? Yeah, good times. I digress. So these pools, sometimes the beavers will build a mound in these pools where they will actually live. Other times they'll just kind of build a burrow in the stream bank. It depends on the situation. But it is worth noting that they don't actually live inside the dam. The dam is purely structural. It is not habitable for the beavers. So... As far as their impacts on the streams themselves, the first one that you could probably think of, and the most obvious really, is the impact on the stream flow itself. So, as you can imagine, the primary impact of this dam building habit for the habitat is that it alters the stream flow quite dramatically. It doesn't necessarily change the amount of water flowing through, but it does change the way it moves, if that makes sense. Okay. So... In particular, it makes the water flow in a much more predictable, but also much more diverse way. Is that confusing? Yes, quite. Okay. Maybe run that back a little bit. I'll explain. So this dam, right, that the beavers build does have leakage. It's not perfect, right? There's not water that's constantly backed up. It's not watertight. So there is water that's coming through the dam. So the stream is still able to flow, but... There is water that is kept in reserve behind the dam, which makes it different from an anthropogenic dam. In that, if we wanted to, at a you know at a hydroelectric dam, we could totally stop the entire river flow. But uh, in a beaver dam, there's always some degree of leakage. The beavers just do it to create this nice pond and that they live in behind the dam, so the river's still able to flow. Now, the main impact of this is that it really slows down the flow of the water. So. In particular, it reduces the peak flows downstream by releasing that water more slowly. So if you have a huge storm that comes through and dumps all this water in a watershed that eventually makes its way into the river, that will, you know, raise the river level and increase the velocity of the water flowing through. But if you have a beaver dam there, it kind of backs all the water up, which lowers those velocities and allows the water to get released more slowly downstream of the dam so it makes the flow more predictable and also slower do you follow me so far i do follow you yeah okay so in the absence of this dam the stream would have a very low flow during times of drought when there's no rain and would rise very quickly when the floods come this is especially true in areas where urban development is more pronounced because humans will pave over a lot of the watershed with these impervious surfaces like asphalt and concrete, which doesn't allow the water to absorb into the soil and instead just runs straight off into storm drains and then directly into the streams. So the streams rise and fall very quickly. But beaver dams kind of offset this because they back up the water, right? And so they force the water to move more slowly and become released more slowly from the rain. Okay, so what the beaver dam does is essentially it prevents these like it keeps things regulated in the middle. It prevents the really high highs or the low lows. It kind of keeps everything at a constant rate is what I'm gathering. Precisely. So you don't get like flash floods and you don't get like extremely low trickles. It keeps it at a nice medium. Precisely. That is exactly what I'm getting at. Furthermore, beavers will dig channels in their ponds. So um, eventually when these ponds, you know, raise the water level behind the dam, it kind of floods out a lot of the surrounding riparian zone. And so it kind of creates these separate little ponds. And what beavers will do is they'll dig channels between these little ponds. And they do this so they they can transport materials more easily, right? So if they want to expand their dam or if they want to just move tree 
trees and branches to different areas. They can do it more easily in the water than they can on land because, you know, branches float. They're easier to move in water. And so they'll dig these channels so that they can move things around. And that's good for the beavers, but it's also kind of good for the stream itself and for the surrounding area because it causes the water to move in these crisscross patterns rather than just in this purely linear fashion, which spreads the water around to different parts of the landscape and kind of widens the stream flow. So without the beaver dam, the water would just kind of move in, you know, this single stream. But with the beaver dam behind it, it raises the water level, and then the beavers will go in and build all these side channels so the water is moving all over the place and really kind of flooding everything out. So that's an additional impact that the beavers have on the stream flow. Furthermore, the trees that they cut down will often stay in place. Because, you know, trees are big and heavy, and once they fall in place in a stream, sediment starts to pile up behind them, and they eventually become buried. And so they're hard to move out of a stream once they're really locked in there. And so once these trees are in place, the water in the stream is forced to flow around the tree. And so this builds up material at the site of the tree because the water stops flowing, and that causes sediment to build up in that particular spot. But the water still has to flow. So the water when it's flowing around the tree, will move relatively uh, rapidly, and this will scour out the debris around the tree. The result here is that you have this shallow water habitat right in front of the tree next to this deeper water habitat around the tree. So previously, where the depth was relatively constant, now you have this extreme change in depth and a resulting diversity in stream habitat. So just by felling a tree, the beavers have really changed the entire complexion of that particular reach of stream. So that effect is also quite significant. So all of this, all these combined factors cause the water to move laterally in addition to just straight forward and backward, which again, reduces the overall power and velocity of the stream. That is, so you're saying it's going to be spread out more instead of more narrow and concentrated. Really? It makes the whole area much more habitable for other organisms in the ecosystem. The other impact here is that by slowing down the water and kind of allowing for water to remain in place and not flow just really, really quickly through a stream, it allows for groundwater recharge, which is a really critical consideration, especially in drought-prone areas. So, or the impacts of beaver dams on groundwater recharge out west where water resources are really, really highly regulated and of extreme importance. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's still a problem now. From what I gathered, a lot of these water agreements out west, some of them were like created in the 1800s when water really wasn't a big problem then. And it was never updated. So it's a big deal if beaver dams can help recharge the groundwater because a lot of people rely on that groundwater in addition to what's flowing through the streams. And in a lot of these areas, humans are currently overexploiting the groundwater. So if the beavers can increase the groundwater recharge by building these dams, it would help, you know, kind of counteract a lot of that overexploitation. Another thing the beavers could do to prevent this overexploitation of groundwater is we could maybe just send them after the people and they could give them a whack or two. If you slap me around a couple of times, I'd probably use less water too. And you think that beavers have particularly exceptional slapping power? Have you seen their tail? Well, you didn't specify that. You said they were just slapping you. I assume a slap is well, with a What else limb. would they slap you with? I've been, that's what beavers do. I've been next to them like uh, out in a boat before. Not directly next to them, but they'll give you a big smack when you get too close and splash you. Right, but that's a nice tail whack. That's not a slap. A slap is with a forelimb. No, because you can slap someone with like a pancake. Wait, a pancake? Yeah, it's flat. What the hell kind of arguments are you having over breakfast where you got to slap somebody <laughs> with a pancake? Dude, you're having serious knockdown drag out <laughs> arguments before lunch? At least let somebody have some coffee first before you smack them upside the face with a pancake. God damn. But the the principle of the slap... The core of my argument is that it is a flattened surface that is hitting you, usually at an angle. Sure. So if For people, we slap with our hands. You can tail slap if you're a beaver, 
And like a fish, you can get fish slapped if they don't have limbs at all. First of all, we are humans, so the assumption is that the slap is occurring with the hand. Generally, if the slap is occurring with some other appendage or object, that appendage or object is specified before the word slap, i.e. tail slap, or in your case, pancake slap. If I just say slap, the implication is that I am hitting somebody in the face with my open palm. If I look up beaver slap, the first thing you're going to see is their tail. If you look up beaver slap, you're probably going to get some really interesting results, and I want to see those. (laughs) Okay, maybe not then. Moving on. So, not only are there impacts on the stream flow itself, which is kind of intuitive and expected, but there are also really serious impacts on the water quality as well. So, not only does the beaver dam affect how the water moves, but it also affects what the water carries. Basically, by slowing down the water, they allow a lot of the sediments carried by the river or stream to fall out of the water column and settle onto the bottom of the pond that is created behind the dam. And these sediments include a lot of nutrient pollution that can be a huge problem in watersheds. These nutrients lead to algal blooms and, in extreme cases, really the destruction of aquatic ecosystems in many estuaries. I know that this is a huge problem in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. It happens in areas throughout the country and really worldwide where really these excessive amounts of nutrients cause algal blooms. And when the algae decays, the decomposition uses up all the oxygen in the water, which makes it impossible for really anything else to live there. So by removing these nutrients from the water column, the beavers really improve the overall health of the stream. And additionally, the presence of these nutrients in the stream bed also means that these areas that are next to the stream and that get flooded out by the beaver dam contain more nutrients. So basically these surrounding areas and some of the areas that are flooded by the stream are fertilized by the river, right? And so when the water rises or when these sediments settle out of solution, they're basically leaving this really fertilized soil in place for plants and animals or for really for plants um, to utilize and grow really, really rapidly. So together this really greatly encourages the you know the growth of plant uh plants both you know in you know in the aquatic ecosystem but also in the surrounding riparian areas as well and as these plants grow they further reinforce the slowing down of the water and allow more nutrients to pile up and more sediments to fall out of solution so it's kind of this positive feedback loop where as the water slows down more and more and more more sediments are being deposited and are falling out of the water column And the overall quality of the water is being improved as this process continues on and on and on, right? Additionally, since a lot of these nutrients come from agricultural runoff, it has been suggested that the introduction of beavers could help offset a lot of these pollutants that are negatively impacting our waterways and our estuaries. Oh, that's a very good argument for beavers then. Everyone should be pro-beaver. It really is, isn't it? Because... When you have discussions about water quality, particularly around the Chesapeake Bay, a lot of those discussions center around nutrient pollution. There are other factors as well. People focus on, you know, temperature, people focus on pH, people focus on dissolved oxygen. All those are hugely important. But a lot of times when you talk about pollutants in our waterways in the Chesapeake Bay, they're concerned with nitrogen and phosphorus. So needless to say, all of this has a huge impact on the ecology, not only of the stream, but on the surrounding area as well. Because beavers, I came to realize, really are a form of ecological succession unto themselves. And when I say ecological succession, uh, the term is generally applied to some, you know, really catastrophic event that wipes away all of the life from one area. And then succession refers to the way in which that habitat is then colonized by, you know, early arriving species and then the species that arrive later and later and over time it develops into this very stable, very productive kind of ecosystem. And that's what we call ecological succession. Basically, ecosystems exist in these stages after a catastrophic event. And really, I would argue that the construction of a beaver dam is such an event because it causes a total and complete shift in 
the stream itself, and also the riparian area around the stream. Because after they flood an area, it becomes populated by a diverse community of plants around its edges. And when the beavers eventually move on from the dam, as they will do from time to time, the area becomes colonized by these marsh grasses, leading to the formation of a what is known as a beaver meadow, which is essentially a marsh. So over time, as sediment continues to pile up in the marsh and the ecosystem becomes more terrestrial, it can become colonized by more shrubs and even trees eventually. So this whole area floods out and then is eventually filled in with a marsh and then over time with a terrestrial ecosystem that, you know, eventually pushes the river aside and totally changes the whole makeup of the of the area. Yeah, they play a massive role. There's so many benefits to them. Yeah, yeah. And what's also worth noting is that beaver-affected streams also provide a huge range of habitats. And, of course, with a huge range of habitats comes a huge range of potential ecological niches. And so when you have a lot of niches, what does that mean? More biodiversity, overall healthier ecosystem. Exactly. So because the stream flow creates this pond, you have what are, what are known as lentic or pond dwelling species that come to colonize these areas that are populated by the, and maintained by the beavers. But because there's still moving water there, you have lodic or stream dwelling species that still exist in this area, which is kind of incredible if you think about it in terms of the potential for biodiversity in that area particular area yeah yeah you get essentially a lot of different species you kind of get two habitats going on in the same area it's like a combo right. deal at two for one so the other aspect of this is that increased water quality also helps out a lot of species downstream of the dams that are really susceptible to these kinds of pollutants right so a lot of species of frogs certain species of fish especially trout that are really sensitive to nutrient pollutants really benefit from beaver dams. What's more is that the gradual release of water from the dams also provides refuges for many aquatic species during droughts. So without the dams, they really wouldn't be able to sustain their populations because the stream would just dry up to this tiny little trickle. But because there's a dam there, there's always water there pretty much. So these aquatic species are able to maintain their populations and use the beaver dams as this refuge. So as you can imagine, these positive impacts on habitats and niches apply to a huge range of species, um, especially invertebrates, you know, like caddisflies that we've that I've talked about in a previous episode and also on amphibians, which you've obviously talked about in numerous episodes. <laughs> many episodes, show. yes. So many episodes. Um, and in the case of the latter, of course, they benefit from having still water, you know, and increased water quality and more shelter with all the branches and logs in the river. What's more is that fish also benefit from reductions in stream velocity because beaver affected areas can provide refuge for fish from predators and from, you know, low flow or high flow discharge environments, as well as spawning grounds for several species and nursery habitat for young fish. So they have these huge, hugely positive ecological impacts for a wide variety of different species and create these hugely productive environments. In the case of fish, it is worth noting that beaver dams do affect their movement, but not in the same way that human dams do. I don't want to draw an equivalence there because beaver dams are far easier for the fish to bypass. Um, they have a very good fish ladder system that they implement. <laughs> yes, yes, precisely. Usually they take shifts, they go out, they, they pick them up and sort of throw them over. Some studies have shown that fish move less when beaver dams are present, but... This could simply be because the fish have all of the required habitats in one place, so they don't need to move as much. It could also depend on where the dam is, right? In upland areas with more fall and faster moving water, the dams can get blown apart more, allowing fish to move. And, of course, this would happen less in low-lying areas where there's less variation in flow naturally without the beaver dam. So... When the beaver dam becomes more constant, fish movement can become more restricted. Basically, this is still like a topic that is open for debate, but 
what I would like to be make very clear is that when people talk about fish movement being restricted by dams, we're talking about anthropogenic human dams that are used for hydroelectric power or a variety of other purposes. But those dams are far more restrictive than beaver dams are. However, on the whole, beavers create this incredibly dynamic and diverse ecosystem with huge benefits that really can help humans with our own challenges with water resources. So, that's my piece. Ah, really cool. Beavers are always a fun animal to talk about. I don't have anything to add other than I'm fairly certain beavers were airdropped after World War II in the Europe. Were they? Sorry, it was not after World War II. Okay, it was after World War II, but it was not because of World War II. It was in Idaho. And they parachuted beavers. Why? I guess they need more beavers. You just spent the whole podcast talking about how important beavers are, and you're wondering why they airdropped them. Sure, but a lot of the research that I was basing this piece on has occurred within the last 30 or 40 years. So why were they doing it in the 1940s and 50s? It's a good way to get them around. Right, but why did they want to get get them around then when we really have only become aware of their benefits within the last half century? You know what? Maybe they just like them. They're fun little guys. I mean, sure. Sure. But I thought there was some additional reasons that went beyond that. I mean, there is. I didn't read the article. I just saw that it happened. Idaho likes their beavers. They wanted some more of them. Regardless, I suggest a uh, revitalization of that policy and that we start airdropping beavers all over the place. Yeah, sounds like we use a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, like I was saying, this is just their impacts on streams themselves. I didn't even talk about the beavers' behavior or their... um, you know, or their physiology, both of which are hugely fascinating. And I could definitely talk about it in a future episode. So with that being done, what have you got for me? All right. So I'm going to start with a little intro here. I'll walk you through a hypothetical situation. So let's say you are going snorkeling in a stream. You jump in. The water is like a nice 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And you look around and you see a lot of bright colored tropical fish. You see cichlids swimming around you. You can see guppies. You can see bright red shrimp crawling around on the rocks. Tropical plants everywhere. You're probably thinking. I would like to pause here. So I'm snorkeling in a stream. Yeah. Generally, when I think of a stream, it's not a snorkelable body of water. It can be about two feet deep. Lie down. All right, I guess that's fair. Continue. Yeah, it was fair. Interrupt me for nothing. I didn't say you were fully submerged. I can go snorkeling in six inches of water if I lie down. I could go snorkeling in two inches of water if I were to lie down. Uh, That's a cop-out. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyways, you're probably thinking you're somewhere tropical, like South America, Southeast Asia, Australia, or maybe even Southern Florida, right? Sure. I'm really hoping it's not the last one, but sure. All right. Now you step out of the creek and you're freezing because it's winter and it's below 32 degrees outside. So you decide to walk into a nearby tavern and you grab yourself a beer. And when the bartender comes by, you say Danke. Because you aren't anywhere tropical. You're in Germany in the middle of the winter, surrounded by tropical fish. What the hell is going on? Seriously. This is a specific stream that I decided to talk about, known as the Gilbach. And this is not from some random fever dream you had, because that's pretty much what you were describing. No, this is a real place. Okay, then. So I'll start with a bit about this history, and then I'll, of course, go over the unique environment, because this is quite unlike anything else, at least that I've heard of. So the Gilbach is a stream located near Bergheim, Germany. It's about 28 kilometers or 18 miles long, and it flows into the Erft River. Okay. At its face value, it's not super noteworthy. It goes through some rural and industrial areas of the country. It's decent in size. It can get up to about three feet deep, 
in the middle. But okay. if you just looked at it, you'd probably just think it's just a stream. The thing that makes this stream so interesting is because it happens to be the source of coolant water for the Niederrazum power plant. Um, so you might be seeing how this happens. Okay, all right. I'm pick, I'm picking up what you're putting down here. Yeah, so this is a actually a coal power plant that was constructed in the 60s, and it's been running since then. And from what I've read, it's actually fairly infamous in its reputation. Apparently, it's the second largest coal power plant in Germany, has the second largest cooling tower in the world, and has regularly been rated as one of the worst polluting coal power plants in terms of co2 and mercury all right that sounds terrible i mean it's a coal power plant they're never great no aaron it's a coal power plant you just said that (laughs) but the most notable effect it has on the ecosystem is the usage of the stream as a source of coolant water which means the water is ejected back into the stream but heated at really high temperatures. And this causes the stream to get up to 75 degrees Fahrenheit or about 23 degrees Celsius at the source, but it keeps it at an average of about 70 degrees. So a a nice summer pool temperature, basically. Yeah, very comfortable, all things considered. And I do have to mention that this is coolant water. It's not like they're dumping the cold directly into the water. It's slightly better than that. There's still spewing out into the air, but it's not like it's being dumped into there. It, In theory, it should just be hot water. Anyways, this is known as thermal pollution, which is you know just making an area warmer than it should be naturally. And because of this, the stream stays warm roughly year-round. And this has allowed centuries worth of released tropical aquarium fish to thrive in this environment which is incredibly unique because in any other situation, these fish would just die during the wintertime. I didn't realize that freshwater aquariums were such a popular hobby in that particular area of Germany. On the side note, Germany is huge for the fish-keeping hobby. Is it really? It, it really is. I, there are many German-only forums. A lot of some of the nicest tank-bred morphs and specimens come from Germany. There's certain varieties of fish that are called like a, what German blue ram. It's actually a aquarium fish. It's not from Germany. It was bred in Germany. Anyways, uh, you can see how this has created this unique environment. Their superheated stream and fondness for fish keeping. Needless to say, some of them are going to get released. Yep. Yep. We've all seen enough photos of giant goldfish and community palms to know what happens when you try to raise fish. Yeah, so I don't know how often people release aquarium fish, but I'm willing to bet it happens extremely frequently. However, most of these aquarium fish can't survive the winter in any northern climate, so they just don't become a problem. Like in the United States, Florida, maybe Texas or California are some of the notable exceptions, but most tropical aquarium fish cannot get established in any of the other states because a cold snap just wipes them out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've watched, like, videos of guys who normally fish in, you know, whatever northern state, go down to Florida, and then try their normal fishing techniques and wind up catching all sorts of weird fish. Like, they're t- they're catching cichlids, they're catching grown goldfish, they're catching, like, all these different weird fish that people have released into the streams in Florida and just kind of forgotten about. But because it doesn't get cold there, those fish don't die they just stick around and so you have these really really wacky fish populations in a lot of parts of florida yeah florida is huge for that they have all kinds of things established down there and like i said this probably gets they probably get released all the time and everywhere occasionally you'll see like a uh you'll see a random tropical fish in like a local pond near you it was obviously let go recently, and as soon as it gets cold out, that fish is going to die. They are not built for the cold. They're from the tropics. They can't tolerate it. Yeah, that happens for fish, but it also seems to happen with people down there. In that, like, they release the crazy people into Florida, and then they 
managed to survive the relatively mild Florida winter. And so now we just have this weird population of people in Florida. Well, thank God they haven't adjusted to the northern weather. Can't work their way up here. So anyways, yeah, we have this really unique environment stream because of the power plant allows tropical fish species to live in a fairly cold country. And the stream itself is filled with many fish species you can find in your local fish store. Guppies, cichlids, tilapia, cherry shrimp, freshwater prawns, plecos, aka the sucker fish that you always see on the glass, have all been officially reported. But I've seen a couple videos. There's a YouTuber called Planted Tank, and he will go there and just sort of film the water. I think he has like a GoPro set up. It's very interesting to see what he finds in this just obscure little stream. But I think there could very well be other popular aquarium fish like mollies or other tetra species that just haven't really been identified yet. Right, right. So are these tropical fish species concentrated to the area directly adjacent to the power plant? Or are they able to survive further downstream or... How is their population limited by the temperature of the water? So that's a great question. And fortunately, because of the stream, it kind of has like a niche following. There's actually been studies on it. There's been a couple papers studying the fish in this stream. So you are right. Most of them hang near the power plant and it can be up to 77 degrees there as it comes out, which is pretty hot or about 25 degrees Celsius. And some species will actually migrate further down the stream in the summer and kind of move their way back up in the wintertime. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And unfortunately, because a lot of the fish that are native to this stream, unfortunately, a lot of the fish native to this stream can't tolerate the heat because the stream is usually pretty cool, all things considered. So they really can't go near the power plant. So there is kind of a dividing line of temperature where these two sides don't interact too much. Otherwise known as the Florida-Georgia line, if you will. Yeah. Okay. So, like I said, a couple of these fish have actually had papers done on them and studied that a couple of these fish species actually have had some research done on them. So I'm just going to briefly go over a couple of them. And the first one I was going to talk about are guppies. Guppies are probably the third most popular aquarium fish besides goldfish and abetta. These are small live-bearing fish found in Central South America. They come in a very wide variety of colors. They are bred in all sorts of shapes and patterns nowadays, although the wild ones are more of a dull brown with some blue or green on the sides. They're all about an inch or so long. Sure, sure. Of course, these fish are also invasive in many warm countries across the world. But in Germany, you can really only find them in this stream. So they've been in the gill box since the 1970s. And upon initial release, these guppies probably had a wide variety of patterns and shapes because they were just bred to come in so many different colors and varieties. But the guppies have sort of reverted back to the more wild type morph. They've lost a lot of their fancy patterns for a duller appearance. Some of the genetic studies have shown that, yes, these were definitely captive bred populations, but they are a bit less colorful than their aquarium counterparts. Okay, that makes sense. There are completely different selective pressures in effect in a, in a tank than there are in an actual stream. So that tracks. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a good thing because it shows the guppies are being eaten. They're not just reproducing uncontrollably out of proportion and all that. No, they're definitely the bright and colorful males are getting picked off, didn't reproduce. So we know there is some selective pressure on them. Okay, yeah, yeah. Other thing is the range of these guppies is only within the first two kilometers of the stream. So they can't really go that far, but they will increase their range. As the seasons changes, they'll move down a little more in the summer and it'll contract in the wintertime. But this might not be the guppies themselves migrating. It might just be they kind of breed uncontrollably as much as they can and then they just all die. Because guppies do breed very quickly. They actually give live birth. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. 
And one paper found that their population will fluctuate from a couple thousand to a couple hundred. So it is literally that they just breed like crazy when it's warm out and then they all die or get eaten. So it was just oh, a wow. small amount and then they repeat the process. Oh, okay. So the lemming method basically is what we have going on here. Pretty much. So you mentioned, so what is preying on the guppies here? Are they, are they native predators or are they introduced? Uh, it is a likely a little bit of both. I'm sure birds feed on them. Probably, yeah. Th- those are all native, and I'm sure there's uh, other terrestrial animals that would feed on these guppies. They do, their range expands a bit more into the cooler portions, and sometimes they don't interact with some native fish species that may prey on them. But one fish that will eat them that is prevalent in the warm portion is the convict cichlid. Okay. And those are introduced? These are also introduced, yeah. They're also a very popular aquarium fish, and they're called convict cichlids because they have black stripes, kind of resemble a prisoner uniform. These guys are larger at about five inches, and they're more territorial. They're not like guppies, so they'll maintain an area that they'll guard. Wait, but if they wanted to live up to the name of convict cichlids, wouldn't they now be bright orange instead of striped? I think it was the old school black and white stripes. Right, but that's not accurate anymore. Well, I, you want to change it to the pinstripe cichlids? I don't know what to tell you. Yes, yes, I do. 100%. <laughs> you, you can start that campaign. So the convicts have also been in the stream for a fairly long time, and they are also, I'm just calling them convicts. You'll know what I'm talking about. That is assuming you've listened to the last five minutes of the podcast. If you came in at just this point, then uh, you're going to be very confused. You will be very confused. So these fish have also been in the stream for a fairly long time, and they're also very invasive in many warm countries because they're popular pet fish and people release them. And they just escape from prison. Yeah, they keep breaking. And no one actually <laughs> releases them from the aquariums. They keep busting out. Don't even know how it happens. They keep taking lessons from Andy Dufresne. I was going to say Finding Nemo. That's probably more accurate, yeah. (laughs) All drains lead to the ocean, except (laughs) when they don't. All drains lead to the Gilfach. Anyways, so these guys are predators, but they're also fairly opportunistic. And one study found that they will feed on pretty much anything, ranging from small fish to bugs to plant matter to themselves, guppies. They they eat whatever they can. Still... Cannibalism is not a good look. It's a fish. They all do it. Doesn't make it a good look. Well, I mean, it's a fish. They're not people. Although, if I mentioned the convicts are cannibalizing, and if you just jumped into the (laughs) podcast... (laughs) Yeah, then it's not a good look. We got all these cannibal convicts (laughs) that are running around Germany, guys. It's a big problem. And... Now I get to some of the largest introduced fish, and these are tilapia. This is kind of hard to track because there are many different fish with the common name tilapia. I don't even think they're all closely related. And to make things more confusing, many of these tilapia are actually hybrids of a couple different fish species. The tilapia in this case are cichlids from West Africa. And they can grow from anywhere from about 4 to 20 inches long. I didn't find a ton of information about these other than just one or two population surveys. But what I've, based off what I've read about these fish, I can assume that in the warm portions, they're kind of the top predators and they probably act more like a bass feeding on the other fish species. So they're kind of the top dog here. Okay. Ambush predators, I assume? Yeah, that's what I would imagine. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. The... Last animal worth mentioning are cherry shrimp. And you might have heard of these. They have become very popular pets in recent years. They are small shrimp, topping out at about an inch long, bright red color. But now they're bred in a wide variety of colors like blue, green, yellow. Of course, many different patterns too. What's notable about this species is they're actually not tropical, which I did not realize until I started reading about them. They're found in China but their range is wide enough that they can tolerate colder temperatures. In fact, I even read that they were bred in a pond in Germany that would regularly ice over in the wintertime. So what you're saying is that even, so even without this power plant, they would still be a really prevalent invasive species? 
Not necessarily. They do better in warmer temperatures. They can tolerate the cold, but they don't live as well in it. Okay, so have they spread further downstream than the other warm water species that you've talked about? So, no, we really haven't found that. And uh, the main reason for that is these guys are omnivores, and they mainly scavenge detritus or algae for their food. So they're always eating a biofilm. Okay. And they do best in an environment with a lot of grass, like a lot of aquatic submerged vegetation. And this actually only really occurs close to the power plant because the grass itself is also an invasive aquarium plant. Uh, Okay. Okay. That makes sense. It forms huge carpets. And because these are bright red shrimp, they might be a bit duller now that they've been in the wild for a couple generations. They kind of stick out to any predator that might want to eat them. So they Mm -hmm. have to kind of hide in this grass. Gotcha. So this probably restricts their range. However, there is the potential for them to expand a bit more, but we haven't really seen it. Something else interesting about these shrimp, which I'm kind of just piecing together from my own understanding, is that they perform the same role as a lot of aquatic insect species like caddisflies or mayflies, feeding on detritus or algae or a biofilm. Okay, so they're collectors and scrapers generally? I would say more scrapers, but I'm kind of just operating under they're eating lots of bits of organic material in the stream. Got it. But the thing about caddisflies and mayflies is they are notorious for being bad at handling high temperatures. They actually need cool water. So I wonder if the caddisflies and mayflies are just completely absent in this portion of the stream and the cherry shrimp are kind of fulfilling their jobs because they aren't there. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If they did expand, I wonder if the two groups would have competition. And if they did, I probably think the native insects might do better just because they aren't bright red. Yeah. Yeah, depending on how well they handle the temperature. Anyways, so I mentioned a couple animals here, and I never use the term invasive for any of them. I might say non-native or introduced, but I never use the term invasive. And there's a reason for that. There's really little evidence that any of these tropical fish can spread throughout Germany. They cannot tolerate the cold, and most studies have shown that the range is restricted to just a few kilometers of the stream. They might expand a little bit, but it's also going to contract as it gets cold again. Got it. Okay. And several studies have also talked about the chance of parasites being passed on, And they've also said that chance is low for similar reasons. The parasites also need warmer water, like their hosts. Right. And parasites also tend to be specialized to one or two species. And so they're also limited by that aspect as well. Yeah. And like I mentioned, several of the native species in this stream can't tolerate the warm temperature at all. So it's not like they're really competing over resources, except maybe in the warmer months and maybe kind of as the temperatures kind of merge, as it gets more moderate in the middle. There are a couple exceptions. I saw that uh, the European barb can tolerate the warmer waters, so you might find them in this upper portion of the stream. And some non-natives, like the cherry shrimp that I mentioned, can tolerate the colder waters better than the rest. Right. Okay. But overall, it's really just a neat science experiment. We can see the effects and ecology of several different tropical species from all across the world, mind you. They're just tossed together. It is kind of like a battle royale situation. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. In fact, over the years, there have been several populations that seem to come and go. For one reason or another, they just didn't get a foothold. They didn't really get established. And it's kind of... It's directly related to whatever happens to be dumped in the stream at the time. So I've seen several mentions of other popular aquarium fish like mollies, platies, and swordtails. And I think I even saw one in a YouTube video, and I think there's been a sighting on iNaturalist of one or two of these. But there hasn't been any huge numbers noted. One article mentioned that at one point there's some invasive turtles in this stream. There might still be some. I haven't read anything about it. And one article cited a piranha showing up in here. I feel like that was a one-off thing. Let's hope so. It's really not a great environment for a piranha other than being warm. I mean, they get fairly big. They need some meat in their diet. It's not 
they're not built for these streams. And it wasn't the citation was like a researcher. Oh, oh, wait, sorry. You misunderstood. I wasn't saying let's hope not because it could be dangerous for the stream. I said let's hope not because the concept of a piranha living in the water around a, around a power plant could spawn like at least three or four really, really terrible B-movies that I would not want to watch. That's literally a... Have you heard of the whales catfish in Chernobyl? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. They're just catfish in Chernobyl. They're in the cooling pond. (laughs) And I think people feed them bread now. (laughs) (laughs) But still, it, it spawns legends. Right, right. The stream is not easy to access, specifically near the power plant, because there's going to be a lot of fences up, and it just doesn't go through like a lot of areas where there's a lot of people. It doesn't go through the suburbs. It mainly goes through rural or industrial areas. The only people that really go out of the way to see this stream are either uh, fishermen, aquarists, or researchers. So it's not like the public is always flocking to come see this stream, but it's got a bit of a following. And with apps like iNaturalist, you can track as new populations emerge as people take photos and upload them. And I think we can use this situation to our advantage. We can study invasive fish behaviors in new ecosystems, and there's not much of a risk of them spreading anywhere else. That's true. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I'm saying it is worth more to study this stream than to spend a lot of money to just wipe all these fish out because there's a very low risk of invasion. Right, especially when somebody could completely do undo all of your efforts by just dumping their leftover aquarium fish in the, into the stream again. Yeah, it could start all over. Yep. I wonder if you could use this stream to track what fish are just not popular at the local fish stores. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. It wouldn't be what fish are unpopular. It would be what fish are kind of like a medium level of popular, like popular enough to get bought, but not popular enough to keep. Yeah, yeah, that's a a good description. It's something like you could get sold on it initially and then you get bored of it within a week or so and then it gets pitched. Right, right. So it's kind of like the Fallout 76 of fish, you know? You you might buy it, but you really don't want it after that point. (laughs) Yeah. You don't buy Fallout 76. That was your first mistake. I, actually, no, I take that back. It was very popular upon maybe a week before launch because no one knew what it was going to be like. Exactly. That's my point. Before people actually played Fallout 76, it was a hugely popular game. That's pretty much every game now, unfortunately. They're not released or they're not finished when they're released. Uh, yeah, it's sad. But anyway. Anyways, yeah, I wonder if we can track, uh, yeah, maybe it's a, we can see what fish people are buying that year. You know, like a lot of people bought guppies, and there's a lot of guppies in the stream. Who would have thought? Maybe we'll get something new on the market, and it'll show up in the stream there. True, true. I don't think there is evidence that people intentionally release fish knowing that they will thrive here just to have them. I think it's more so people that are kind of just neglecting their animals or they don't want them. I don't don't think it's like uh, people intentionally put it here so they can see it later. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Also worth mentioning, this entire environment is held together by a coal power plant and a seemingly dirty one at that, which is, I can't say that about anything else. So in addition to being tolerant of warm water are these also are these species that persist in this stream also ones that tend to handle pollutants well i don't know if they handle pollutants well but all these fish are some of the more hardy aquarium fish and aquariums can get pretty dirty if you don't know what you're doing so i feel like if they can survive a dirty aquarium they could potentially also survive runoff from a coal power plant Yeah, and I'm assuming the people that would tend to release their fish into a local stream are probably the people who don't know what they're doing, so the fish that manage to survive their tanks are probably pretty hardy. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. If they're super fragile, they probably didn't last too long. They didn't make it to the escapee process. (laughs) 
They didn't make it to the first filter change. <laughs> so as soon as this coal power plant goes, all these animals are going to die off. It's incredibly likely. Maybe, you know, hopefully Germany does replace it with something a bit more sustainable, like, like solar or nuclear. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's literally this coal power plant has been ranked as, I think, top 10 dirtiest coal power plants. Maybe a bunch have come in recent years and blown it out of the water. I don't know. Yeah. But it doesn't right. seem like it's doing a lot of good right now. So this ecosystem, it's not going to be around forever. But while it is here, I think we should study it and we should learn from it and enjoy it. I'm eager to see what else will turn up here. Yeah. Yeah, it all depends on what's being sold at the local pet store. And I did say that this was a very unique situation, but it's not the only place like this. There are actually populations of tropical fish across the world in thermally polluted areas. So some of these are from industrial usage. In fact, the river that the Gilbach feeds into also has some industries around it. And I believe there's some very small populations of guppies there. Very small, though. Nothing near the levels as the upper Gilbach. Okay. But there's some sightings like this kind of across the world. And there's also hot springs that are filled with tropical fish. There's actually a bunch in Germany and Austria with similar fish species that people have dumped in this hot spring. And because it stays nice and warm, the fish live there year-round. Huh. In fact, I even looked it up, and the closest one I could find to me was in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. There's a population of guppies living in the hot springs there. Really? Yeah, obviously they got dumped at some point, but they're still going strong. Sometimes this is harmless. Some of these hot springs are really isolated to the point that there was never any fish living there to begin with. Right. So in that sort of situation, it's not great, but it's not as bad. Actually, in the Midwest, you can find a bunch of tourist attractions where it is just a hot spring. It's kind of just a hole in the ground, and it's filled with all these tropical fish, and people will go scuba diving in like the middle of Utah. Hey, I do that. It sounds like a good time. Yeah, pretty cool. Of course, sometimes these hot springs also have native fish there, like maybe some sort of pupfish. And in that case, the invasive fish can definitely interfere with that. I was just about to go there, yeah. But overall, we have a unique tropical ecosystem filled almost entirely with invasive species from across the globe in the middle of Germany. And the only reason it exists is because of a coal power plant. So that's my piece. I felt like it was worth discussing. Nothing quite else like it. Absolutely. Yeah, I I had heard of thermal pollution altering environments in that way, but I hadn't connected it to tropical fish. I'd seen photos of like manatees really far north that were enjoying the thermal pollution from nuclear power plants, but nothing like that from, you know, on a stream level or with tropical fish species like that. Yeah, I... I want to look more into this. I want to try and find one near me. I, no one wants to find an invasive species or a non-native species, but if I could find like a little pocket somewhere, it'd be cool to study at the very least. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. That was awesome. So, um, you got any ideas for the next episode? Uh, I had a couple. Did you have anything in mind? Had a bit of a list here. Um, no, I'll let you go first. Okay, we could do another. Is there any type of plant you've been thinking of? Because we've only done really one plant episode. I thought maybe we could return to that. True, true. I also thought we could talk about conservation. We've talked a couple times about extinctions, but it'd be nice to have a success story. Okay, so do you want to talk about recoveries then? Yeah, we can do that. All right, yeah, it'll be a positive episode. Yeah, some good news for once. Back from the brink. I like it. There we go. I, I, That's a great title right there. All right. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. So, um, with that being decided, do you want to take us out? Yep. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a follow or review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com or souppotpodcast on X. All right. Sounds great. And until then, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.